In this episode, I'm talking to Patrick O'Looning, CEO of Endreams. Endreams are a virtual reality games publisher and developer at the forefront of gaming innovation. Founded by Patrick in 2006, Endreams have grown from their base in Farnborough, UK, to multiple remote studios. Since 2013, Endreams have been focused entirely on virtual reality, and Patrick and the team were among the first to step into this immersive new medium. Combining state-of-the-art technology with creative excellence, Endreams have developed the award-winning Phantom Covert Ops, Far Cry VR and Fract. The business continues to go from strength to strength. In March 2022, Endreams completed a $35 million investment from Aeonic Group. The video game sector is an area Zeus have a fantastic track record. We've IPO'd the likes of Sumo, Tiny Build and Devolver. We've sold video games businesses to private equity and we've been involved in multiple M&A transactions. The sector is a hot topic and the UK leads the way globally in terms of deal activity and we are lucky to have spent time with hundreds of businesses in the sector. I'm excited to hear from Patrick who operates in a very different vertical within the video game sector. For anyone a fan of VR, Ready Player One, the Metaverse, this is definitely a podcast for you. Hello, Patrick. Thank you very much for joining us on the Zeus Founder and Chief podcast. We're not sat face to face today. In fact, I don't think we've ever actually met face to face. But given that you are CEO of a technology business, that's probably no surprise to you. And there's probably many relationships internationally and in the UK where you've never met people. You've only actually seen them on a screen. Um, so you are going to be very much relaxed in a team's environment. For those listening to us on this podcast today, can you tell me where you are? Yeah, I'm actually at home this morning. I'm going back into the office this afternoon. So one of the lovely things about uh, the, the modern way of working is that, you know, you, we can do it in a hybrid way. So I tend to do two, three days in the office um, and then maybe a couple of days at home, depending on what happens. Is that consistent with the rest of the, the workforce as well as a sort of hybrid model? Yeah, so in our main, we've got three studios, our main studio in Farnborough, everybody kind of does that, works two, three days in the office, and then they, if they just want to get their head down, sometimes it's easy to do it from home and not have to commute in and come in if they just want to get some work done. We've got two other studios that are fully remote, so they just work from home all the time, they're, they're completely remote. Got it. Right, before I start asking you and quizzing you about your career and end dreams and you telling us all the secrets behind the story, you're going to have to start educating us about VR immersive technology how do you attempt to explain to someone who's never come across a vr game headset or experience so i think probably the best way to explain it is that you know, you've got a vr headset um you, you stick the vr headset on your head and you suddenly teleported into another place so you can look around you can look above behind you you feel like you're somewhere else so it's a it's kind of a teleportation device it really genuinely makes you forget where you are and takes you to another place you see in 3d all around you you see things moving uh, you hear in 3d around you and it, it's a very very believable teleportation device that's what makes vr so special and um because of that it acts as a bit of an emotion amplifier. You know, things like fear and excitement and awe and all the great emotions you get in traditional video games are so much more powerful in VR because you're actually there. You're not looking at them through a sort of, you know, a screen, through a, you know, a frame on a TV or a phone. You're actually there and it's around you and behind you and above you and below you. Um, so that's, I think, what makes VR so special. AR is a little bit different. Maybe we can talk about that later. But certainly what we do mostly is VR and it's all about immersing you in other worlds. So you graduate from the University of Reading in 1995, Patrick, and you joined Codemasters straight away. Talk me through your journey from graduating to where you are now with Endreams. 
Yeah, so I, I kind of fell in love with computer games when I was a teen. Um, and when I left uni, I knew, you know, I could be a programmer in a company doing Excel spreadsheets and business software, or I could go make games. And it was the, when I realized that it was like a light bulb. So I went to Codemasters as a programmer originally, um, which I was all right at, I'm not a bad programmer, but there were people that were better than me at that. Um, so I worked on a, you know, some really fun games there, Micro Machines, one of the best known games we did. Um, we began to move into the design side because I was, you know, I really loved the creative side uh, and then began doing some more business stuff. So I, I ran the external development there. So we were looking for great developers to bring into Codemasters, um, signed some great games. Operation Flashpoint did very well, some other games at Cody's and then um, moved to a company called SCI, uh, who was sort of quite small, but quite ambitious as creative director, where I was in charge of kind of the design and trying to bring some great games in and get the quality of what they were doing up. Um, and that was really exciting. It worked very well. We had some, you know, some really fun games, Italian job, Conflict Desert Storm, lots of uh, lots of things that did surprisingly well. And then there's this kind of reverse takeover of IDOS, this incredibly audacious um, takeover of IDOS that happened, where which I sort of, you know, got to see through, um, which was fascinating. And then became creative director of IDOS for about 18 months, getting to work with um, Crystal Dynamics, the guys who did Tomb Raider. I was, really, you know, I was responsible for the design of all the games, so Tomb Raider and Hitman and some really, really amazing IPs. Um, made a bit of money through some share options. And unlike my friends who wanted to get sports cars or a nice, nice TV, I thought, you know what, this is my chance to start my own studio. I always wanted to be in charge of my own destiny. Um, you know, and I kind of felt like SCI IDOS were kind of at the peak and maybe we're, we're going to be heading downwards. And, and okay. I didn't necessarily agree with everything that was happening there. So, yeah, it was just the right time for me to start something new. Um, so, yeah, so in 2006, I left um, started End Dreams, you know, in a tiny one person office in Farnborough, where we are now. Um, on my own for a year, pretty much just solo. It was pretty scary. And, uh, but, you know, worked really hard, quite close to it failing after 12 months. You know, we were struggling a little bit, got a bit, got that bit of luck we needed, um, landed a big deal with Sony, and now we're 150 people growing fast. Big leap of faith, and, you know, you sort of learn a lot about yourself and those, what, that first 12 months, probably going home, talking to the family, you know, was this the right thing to do? The contemporaries are driving around in a Big red <laughs> or a Porsche, thinking, oh, that's how the, you know, the other side I live. But hopefully now it's all come through and um, that, that decision has paid out in dividends. Engines were an early adopter um, to VR. I'd love to know how you were able to spot this trend earlier on. And I presume at the time, whilst, you know, we, we have had many iterations here and it isn't, it isn't a brand new concept or you know, a 10 year old sort of concept, but you must have got a number of curious looks when you said, right, we're, we're going to double down here. We're going to focus on this particular niche. How did you know, or you know, what was your conviction that that this was the right destination for you? Do you know what? It was just a really powerful gut instinct. I think <clears throat> we were lucky enough to see. Uh, so the the guy who founded Oculus, a guy called Palmer Lucky, and Brendan Arrive, who was a CEO, had flown over to Europe to show off this headset. This was before Oculus bought them, so they were a tiny little company. Uh -huh. um, and I got a chance to try that. And then actually a few weeks later, Sony had invited us in secretly to look at their PlayStation VR headset, which was called Morpheus back then, uh, to see a little prototype of it. And you know what, the, 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 seeing both of them, I went, this is something special. This is not just a gimmick. This is not 3D TV. This is not something that makes things you know, a little bit better. You know, This is amazing. And when this technology gets better and smaller and lighter and more powerful, wow this is going to change the way we make games this is really cool so i think i just fell in love with it completely fell in love with it and actually 
we've been doing a lot of virtual world stuff with Sony on PlayStation Home, which was coming mm -hmm. towards men. So actually we were looking for where we were going to transition as a company. So the timing was right. And so I kind of went, you know what? I think we should just go all in now, really early, 2013, end of 2013. So it was yeah. nine years ago. Um, admittedly, probably too early in retrospect, although actually I'm really glad we did do it because we've learned so many skills and got to know all the platform holders and all those kind of things. But you made mistakes early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, you're right. We made our mistakes early and it was definitely a, a leap of faith. But I was just convinced that VR was going to be successful. And I thought, you know what? If it isn't, we can give it a go. But actually, if we get early, we really understand it. We try and become the people that know VR, know how to develop VR games better than anyone else. That could be a really exciting thing to do. So we just, you know, just took the plunge. Um, we had a bit of money in the bank. Thought, yeah, you know, we should be able to afford this. We realised fairly quickly that it was going to take a while for it to get commercial, and that's when we started to look for investment for the first time. But even that point, there, when you say you know you had money in the bank, that that can often help entrepreneurs, business owners make the make those better decisions. You know, you, you're not thinking about today because yeah. you've got money in the bank, you've got that buffer. You know, it doesn't matter how you know how big that buffer was. You were able to say actually we can focus on tomorrow and further down the line here and. I say that 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 decision has has come back to um, to reap its dividends. So yeah, as you said, look, VR has not been a one way bet. It has taken time. Um, you know, it's not been a sort of straight line of growth all all the way off that sort of hockey stick, as you see. It's been tough for you guys to make a success of it. Describe some of those ups and downs, and you know what what were the challenges probably in those early days and a growing a VR business. So I think if you, what's fascinating reading is looking back in 2014 and 15 at the analyst, uh, you know, forecast for VR, and it was all, oh my god, this is going to be huge within, you know, 24 months. Yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah. like most new technology, like smartphones, like you know, you look back and you think, oh, smartphones, they just went ballistic. It's like now there were years and years of not very good phones and WAP gaming and all sorts of other stuff before it really took off. And I think the same has happened in VR. So. We realized that actually we needed some investment to get to really do this properly because this is going to take longer than we thought. Um, so that was probably the the first challenge we had, um, which is quite a big mental leap for us because it had always been, you know, our company. And my, my wife uh, is a, helped me found the company as well. So, so it was bringing in an external investor. That yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah, it's a big step. Um, but we, we realized that it was the right thing to do, you know, and and uh, and, and actually managed to find an investor who were very visionary, who were, who didn't have a very tight timeline. They were like, right, we've got a fund, but we need to be out in two or three years go, because that wouldn't have worked in retrospective. VR's taken longer. We needed somebody that believed in us. And as long as we were making the steps upwards and forwards, would support us in that journey. And that's what we managed to find, which was great. So um, that that's probably, that, that was the hardest step for us, but you know, in the in the, in the time between then and now, you know, it's been a little bit like getting through the desert, uh, um, you know, VR desert. It's 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 been hard to make money. You know, you, we get funded a little bit by by VR companies, which helps. But now, over the last eighteen months, we've got to a very commercial point where you can actually make money. You can start a game and make more money than it takes. It's properly commercial. There's you know, uh, well over twelve million, fifteen million Oculus headsets out there now. Um, lots of new headsets coming. It's it's becoming a pretty viable market, a really strong market commercially, and and it's taken a long time to get there. In terms of maybe looking at some of the sort of technical issues, then um, I remember the first time I put a VR headset on, and I think I was well, I was definitely stationary, but whatever I was looking at wasn't, and I did have an it. I knew it, it made me feel nauseous the first time that that I used it, and it did feel a bit of a, a somewhat out of body experience. This is probably going back, I don't know. 
five, six years now. So we're talking, yeah. I don't know, sort of, you know, 20, 2016, 2017, maybe. How have you managed to sort of, as a business, how, have you got over those challenges whereby the impact of you or I using the you know the headset, which obviously isn't necessarily your hardware, but the games, et cetera, didn't make people feel unwell, put them off. And then what talks us around the the VR development, which is different to a sort of traditional animation or, or game design? Yeah, so there've been a there's there's two answers to the question about motion sickness. And one is technological. So the first headsets that came out didn't have any kind of motion tracking. So if you moved your head sideways yeah. or forwards or back, nothing would change. And instinctively, that's going to make you feel pretty weird because that never happens. You know, yeah. they they only had rotation, so you could look up and around, but you couldn't move. And that was a huge problem because half of the information you get in your eyes is just wrong. It feels wrong instinctively. So we've seen some big technological changes. You know, all the all the VR headsets now, all the VR headsets have full six degrees of freedom tracking, which means that you can, you know, you can move around and it will just track you perfectly. The refresh rate, how quickly they kind of update the screen, has improved a lot as well, and that also helps a lot in terms of uh, sickness. And also, um, you know, there are a few other technological bits that have happened, but I think developers have understood as well how to 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 design games right. It's very easy to make people feel ill if you suddenly spin the camera around without them anticipating it. You know, somebody picked you up now physically and spun you around 360 degrees without you expecting it, you'd feel pretty queasy, you know? That's just really Friday night. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so it's hardly surprising that that would happen in VR. It's very authentic. So it's about, you know, I think developers have learned uh, a lot about how to, to make things feel as comfortable as possible. And also to be fair, people, you know, People playing VR have get used to that a little bit as well. So yeah, you'd be amazed at how great people. I was, I, I was talking to someone the other day, and it's a little bit like when people first used mice for first-person shooters. You know, it used to be in the old days of Doom, you'd use the cursor keys, and that was it. And then suddenly there was a mouse, and people hated it for quite a while. But it's the yeah, it's a standard on PC now. It's become a standard, and I think there are standards developing in VR about user comfort and how to move comfortably and all that kind of stuff which which wasn't which weren't around in 2016. So then Patrick then in terms of the the development of a VR game how how does it differ from a what anybody else would consider a, a normal video game? So some of it is fairly similar you're creating you know 3D environments and characters and assets and you're you know you're making a game you're making audio you're creating a game um some of it is quite different the game design is probably the most different thing because you have to design what the player does and how they interact with the world to make use of what's so special in VR. And that is the fact that you've got hands and you can grab stuff and touch stuff and flick switches and look under things and behind things and all these kind of things you wouldn't traditionally do in games. So I think game design is probably the bit that's the the, the most important and the most different to traditional games. Um, in terms of you know 3D modeling, artwork, it's it's fairly similar actually. Audio, okay. you definitely have to be more because people can put their heads behind monitors or you know move around, go up and down in in unusual ways. Sound design is much more important, and you have three D audio in the headsets as well, so you can actually design things to sound above and below and behind you and do some really stunning things with sound that you couldn't, you just wouldn't get on a phone or a, a TV speaker system. Um, what else? I think it's it's really. It's really, uh, it's the design of it. It is the, what are you making? How do you play? What's the fun? What's the, the we call it the core gameplay, the core game mechanics. 
that side of it is is the magic source. If that's fun, if that's great, then you're in a brilliant position. And you have to design with VR in mind. You can't just port and take an existing game to VR and go, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, the very best VR games are designed with VR right from the beginning. Got it. End Dreams are in a very strong market position. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but top three in the world. Yeah, we believe so. Yeah, in terms of where you compete. Help me understand then what that competition looks like. You know, who are you up against? And do we expect Apple eventually to enter this market and, and, and look to dominate? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a handful of developers our size. Um, some of them are owned by much bigger groups. Um, you know, Skydance have got a great team. Um, Embracer have got a great team with Vertigo. Um, but there aren't actually many studios of the size and scale that we, we're doing. Um, we don't see the traditional publishers as as a as a sort of competition. To be honest with you, I think what we're seeing is companies like EA and Activision uh, struggling to hire the teams they need just for their big traditional IPs. So they don't have spare resources to go develop VR. They're much happier to go find great teams that specialize in that. So I think it's it's the handful of bigger developers are our biggest com competition. Um, but I think it's too early for really for competition you know we're we need more great vr games we need more big vr games you know it's not it's not really at the point where it's cutthroat and we're all trying to beat each other to be honest with you it's lovely seeing great studios making great games because it just elevates vr in general um apple absolutely i mean you know it's a it's an open open secret that they've hired you know hundreds and hundreds of vr and ar engineers for the last five or six years Lots of rumours about them being pretty close to announcing. I think they're still working on the hardware, and I think everybody that that knows Apple knows that they want to get things perfect before they they launch them. So I'm sure they will announce what they're doing when they're ready to announce it, and uh, and you know nobody is going to predict exactly when that will be. But I don't think it's far off, um, and I think Apple coming into the VR AR market will be huge for 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 everybody because it'll be. Of course, a phenomenally designed piece of hardware, probably be quite expensive, but I'm sure it will be incredible in terms of its um, experience too. Um, it's a but, great opportunity for you guys at Endreams. Yeah, very much so, very much so. So that's going to be exciting. And then there are, you know, lots of other companies working in VR as well. So there are, you know, new Samsung and HTC and obviously Meta, the uh, formerly Oculus, you know, they've got lots of great new hardware coming, you know, super exciting. The Quest 2 has been phenomenal. Um, Sony with the PSVR 2 is a big push for them and it's a brilliant headset that's going to be very exciting and then there are rumours about some other people coming in too so I think there's going to be more and more harbour out there the guys at Bite Dance who own um, TikTok are obviously a very very big company bought a company called Pico uh, who are a, a, an excellent VR headset manufacturer from China do a headset that's very similar to the Quest actually, not too far off that at all. And, and so they're now bringing that out in the West. And I think that could be a real competitor as well. So there's a lot of new devices coming at the moment though, for us, it's still, the market is Quest, it's PlayStation VR 2 that's coming and there's PC VR headsets as well on Steam that are providing quite a decent number of sales as well. I'm gonna make you get your crystal ball out or stick your headset on. Fast forward five years, and it may end up being six, seven, yeah. eight, given how sometimes the trajectory is gone. What do you think the VR market looks like and what is the commercial opportunity for a business like yourself? So I think it's that the, the hockey stick is started. So if you, we looked at Boxing Day on the App Store on the iPhone and the number one free app was the Oculus app above TikTok, nice. above everything else. That was the number one app on the App Store on Boxing Day. Now, I think that's a sign that this is getting properly commercial. Um, five years time, 
you'll see VR headsets get smaller, much lighter. You may see them running off the cloud as well through 5G, in which case you don't need GPUs and CPUs and big batteries and everything on there. You know, potentially that allows them to get really, really small and tiny. But there have been lots of patents and great demonstrations from some of the, the, the big tech research groups of VR technology that is way thinner and way lighter and, and you know, much, much easier. So you'll see very, very light VR headsets. You'll see the power and the technology be, be astonishing, I think. Um, and I think you'll see AR starting to break out as well. You know, I'm absolutely convinced that in, I'm not sure five years, but maybe, you know, certainly within 10 years that my kids or my grandkids maybe will look at these things phones and go what you used to touch a piece of glass with your finger didn't it get all dirty that's so old-fashioned just like we look at cassette tapes now you know my daughter was saying how on earth do you get to the start of a new song on a cassette tape it's like well you kind of have to forward a bit and listen and it's like that's so stupid and, and I think actually these will will die out and I do think that you'll find you've got a very lightweight pair of glasses that does everything on here just much better because this is all about 2D but we see in 3D and naturally things are better when you see them the same way that you do everything else and so I do you know I really am a big believer that maybe it's 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 10 years away but people will absolutely stop looking down at phones as they walk around all the time and they'll be looking up but with glasses giving them the information they need when they get home if they want to immerse themselves in an amazing fantasy world they won't put the telly, telly on they'll put on an incredibly comfortable VR headset super high resolution and just lose themselves in the magical fantasy realm or whatever it is I mean that that is your, what was I suppose that you you google glass that you know, that that came out however many years ago that was I think people not looking down at their phones can only be a good thing when you're trying to walk through the streets, especially when you're in sort of busy London. But then I suppose if everyone's got glasses on and they're, they're, they're trying to check where the next diary appointment is or what the weather's like in a particular place, I don't know if that's going to cause more more accidents in the high streets or whatever that might be. But you look at the, the I just, you, know, you sort of picked on music then. If you think about vinyl, L, you know, singles as EPs and you've got you know, LPs, then you know, it might get some of this order wrong, but you know, cassette tapes. And then you had mini discs and they sort of came went very quickly, didn't you? And then CDs and so <laughs> yeah, how, do we, how do we consume our phone, you know, music? Now, I, I still listen to albums. I'll still listen to full albums on Apple Music, but people just stream songs, Spotify, yeah. listen to full albums. Now, and you can see how, how that's developed. So I think, you know, you're absolutely spot on. It, it will take time and it's all around the, the, the consumer behaviour, but probably the, the generations that you're looking to target are faster, you know, they consume products and they're willing to test and and, and be more eager to, to get this new technology rather than people who probably wait to see and you know, they won't be the early adopters as it were. Yeah. Um, I, I, as we're gazing then and as you're educating everyone who's listening to this, the metaverse, a buzzword very much at the moment and every person I talk to seems to have a different view or explanation on what the metaverse is or what yeah. it can be. Given that you're, uh, I'd say so if you wouldn't necessarily say so yourself, you're at the cutting edge this kind of technology and you know vr what's your take and what do you think the opportunities are for gaming companies within the metaverse so we spent a lot of time building content for playstation home which is a sort of virtual world on the ps3 i think it was um so we learned a lot about what makes a really vibrant community of people and and um i think for me, the metaverse is about being able to have a persistent look, a persistent group of friends, um, persistent objects that you've bought or owned or T-shirts with, you know, fashion, whatever you like on it, something that represents you, 
where you and your friends can jump between lots of different places instantly. So you could be going in, playing a game of Fortnite together, and then you jump out and suddenly you're in Sony World and you're looking at the trailer of Big Cinema for something new. And then you jump out and you're in Netflix World and you're going to jump, you know, to to go into Stranger Things together and have a look around and see what's going, you know. I think it's the ability to jump between games and experiences um, together as a group with with a persistent avatar, persistent group of friends, persistent things that you own. Um, that for me, that's what I would call a metaverse. And I think so you that, see it very much a group or yeah. you know, friends collective sort of environment um, experience. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I did, certainly for me, I mean, I've been influenced by things like Snow Crash, which is a brilliant book. If you haven't had a chance to read Snow Crash, it's kind of a seminal sci-fi book that describes the metaverse written 30 years ago. I don't know, probably longer than that, okay. you know, long time, but it's brilliant, absolutely fantastic. And that's the sort of thing, I, you know, I, I think Pete, there will be, it's not going to be a an owned thing owned by a particular company. It's not going to be an Apple product or a Microsoft product. It's going to be, I think, like the web. You know, the web is a collection of all sorts of different sites where you can jump between one and another, and it's just a service that makes it very, very easy to get information, to do stuff, to book stuff. But it's fairly isolated. It's a single-player experience, really. You don't, don't tend to go on the web with lots of other people. You tend to browse on your own. And it's very 2D. I think the metaverse is a 3D version of the web where you're doing the games, you're still playing games, you're going into worlds, but also you're doing things that you would normally do on a 2D website in 3D. And you can have social experiences with friends around you in a much easier way than you could on a web. So I think potentially it's a replacement for the web. Well, I'm going to take you out of the conceptual, um, or less conceptual anyway, uh, and get into the, the factual. As a business, you've completed multiple um, fundraising rounds. You've got an investor in fairly early on in your yeah. development. Um, as a business, and that probably reading between the lines and knowing you a little bit, that, that, that feels like a bit of a leap and it was obviously a big decision for you. You most recently took investment from Aonic in March this year, um, which was a large check. Talk me through that first fundraise with Mercia, who were the yeah. um, original um, investor, and then compare it to your most recent fundraise in terms of either types of questions you were asked, the level of education that um, that people had, investors that you were talking to um, had, now had on the sector and you know, how they differed and you know, what happens next? So I think the, the first investment, um, you know, we realised that VR was going to take a bit longer than some of the analysts had said and we needed some money to really, you know, drive our <clears throat> understanding and experimenting and learnings and all that kind of stuff. So. We, I, you know, spoke to a few different people and I, I bumped into somebody I knew from the games industry before who was working at Mercia and told him about what we wanted to do. And they were absolutely the perfect partner for us. They were looking to invest in a very small way, sort of CDIS kind of EI, mini EIS initially, um, way in, in new tech that was a bit further out. And obviously VR being very, very early, it was a really risky bet for them, but they could put a very small amount of money in, in a very risk-free way with the EIS structure and then follow us and, and, and follow our journey. And so that's what they did. And they they it was always a long-term bet for them. It was something that wasn't going to pay off in two or three years. But you know what, if this was, if they really got in and VR did take off, this could be a great investment for them. And uh, you know, I was really grateful that they were willing to take that risk so early on because there are still people, you know, when we were going around looking at investment, um, you know, end of last year uh, or throughout last year, uh, there were still some companies that, that were like, oh, it's too early to invest in VR. We really wait until it's absolutely massive. It's like, oh, come on, you know, but 2013, 2014, you know, that was really early. So the fact that um, uh, they've, 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 been, they've been great because they're a sort of, they've been able to do 
seed round. They've been able to do Series A with us. They've been able to give us, you know, cash as we've needed it. As long as we've been proving that we're growing and proving that we're getting better and that we're selling more and that we're understanding the market and they can see the VR market slowly growing. It's taking a while to get there. They've been happy to kind of support us and back us. And now that it's really taken off, it's, um, you know, we've probably got to the end of our journey with Mercia in terms of them investing in us. Um, but, you know, they've been an absolutely amazing partner and still remain a great partner on our board and, and you know, absolutely recommend them to anybody. Um, the round that we've just done, we, it was kind of a rocket fuel round. So, you know, we've, we have, we're in a situation where we've got way too much work coming in. We're turning projects down. We just don't have enough capacity. We need to scale. We're publishing other people's games now. So we're out there looking at great VR developers, helping them fund and publish and market their games. And we need more. That's quite capital intensive. And so you can really grow and expand that, but you need to put the money into the development of those games. So it was a real was for us looking for a rocket fuel round, somebody that could really support our growth from where we were last year to where we hope to be, which is kind of the clear number one in this space. Um, and was it validation when you when you when you obviously had interested parties, etc. Yeah. Was a validation that you that you'd built what you had hoped to build, however many years ago. You're on the right path, and this does take you to number one. Yeah, I think it really was actually the fact that we got, you know, multiple offers and lots of people interested was great. It was a it was a very interesting round because we kind of assumed when we started it would be a straight UK PE firm that wanted to back us with lots of money and then we'd go on an IPO in the UK and that would be the route and, yeah, and actually, conversations, didn't we? Yeah, quite. yeah, yeah. And and interestingly, you know, I felt like some of the PEs were a bit too risk averse, actually. I mean, maybe it would have been different if we were based in the US, but you know, still wanted us, you know, we were still a bit early for them. And we needed the money now. And we found this from amazing investor, um, you know, who are extremely excited about VR, completely believe about where it's going to go, but have got lots of money, lots of capital, very, very keen to push us to grow and scale uh, and acquire and, and, and get bigger. And that's that's been, you know, absolutely brilliant, actually. We've kind of fell in love with them because they're just that their um personalities that you know the morals they have are just such a perfect alignment with us as were mercy actually and we did meet a few PEs. we were like oh my goodness that there's a clash there you know we just wouldn't get on they're very different people to us and so it was quite interesting meeting so many different types of investors and seeing the ones that really felt like yeah that's a you know that just feels like they'd be perfect around the board table it's interesting I'm just going to just pick on something you said there so i mean you know obviously we've got a very good track record in the space we've advised on, on a number of deals and we have multiple conversations with private equity who are, who are very keen to get into the space. I almost noted there a sort of a hesitancy from some of the UK investors. Is that just more VR in terms of where they think the space is from your experience of your conversations that, that, that you had on that last fundraising round in terms of the European and the, you mentioned US? Is it just a different outlook from UK or was there maybe market conditions within that? No, I think it, I think it is mainly that. I think there's a little bit, you know, we we'd raised some money in the past, and our value was maybe, you know, uh, it, it wasn't we weren't a cheap investment. So I think you know yeah, they're, they're yeah. always looking for great value, and you know maybe we they felt like what we were looking for was a little bit much for for some of them. But certainly, I think the main issue was was really that that um, yeah, they're just there's just more caution I think in new unproven tech or tech that's getting there but isn't quite mass market yet. And I feel like there's a little bit more tentative tentativity, if that's the word, in the UK maybe than in than in Europe and the US. I maybe I'm wrong, but I certainly that's that's the impression that I got a little bit. You know, they you know give it another year, let's see when it really on the middle of that hockey stick, then we'll invest. It's like, well, you kind of need the investment now just as the hockey stick's happening. Yeah, the point is it, 
you put the rocket fuel in, and haven't you? You've, you've yeah. gone to that next level. You, you would expect then that if there is to be a next round or what that exit looks like, it probably wouldn't necessarily be a traditional UKPE kind of a you know transaction. Yeah, I don't know. So we, I don't know what the future will be. It's you know we've got an amazing investor behind us. He's he's really supportive, and actually it's it's going incredibly well with them. We've still got Mercia who are incredibly supportive. Um, so. We're in a good place and I don't know what the future will be. We'll see. You know, they're, they're, we, all I know is that we're growing incredibly fast and we're focused on making the very best games. We just announced that we're doing Ghostbusters in VR, which is going to be yeah. really cool. If you can imagine four, four players in VR all going in together with their proton packs, it's just going to be such a blast. Um, so there's Who's lots your favourite Ghostbuster? Oh, I don't know. I thought that we Bankman. It's it's a great IP and we've got some new PlayStation VR 2 stuff coming as well and lots of other exciting things. So we're just focused on scaling the business. We're signing more great third-party games, looking for, for great developers out there. And just, it's it's nice to have the freedom to go do the, the things that we think are right for the business without having to worry about cash constraints, which is great. You've um, you, you've mentioned before, and you've been very complimentary about Mercy and Mercy are still on the board and on, I know you've got some some very impressive names um, around you on the um, you on the on the board table. Just um, help those people who are listening to this who are either developing their board or potentially even happy with their current board or wanting to build a board. How did you get such good names on your board, and what what's important to you as a CEO um, around getting the right personalities and people on that board table? So we've tried to do two things. One is we've tried to always have a mix of skills and experience and viewpoints because that's really helpful. You don't want everybody to be just like you. That'd be awful. I mean, you know, it'd be good in a way in that everyone would just agree with what you said, but you wouldn't, you'd never get challenged. And that's, that's what you want to see. Yeah. You want to be pushed. So we've always tried to make sure we have somebody who gets the marketing side and somebody who knows development and somebody who's just great at finance and the business side. Um, we've got somebody who's based in the US who gives us a US viewpoint, which is brilliant. So he's very immersed with the US tech companies and the US technology scene. And it's lovely having somebody on the board to give you a kind of transatlantic viewpoint because it's very easy to be very British and you know, we deal with a lot of US companies. Um, we managed to persuade Frank Sagnier to be our chairman. So Frank was the, uh, he, he basically listed Codemasters and then sold yep. them very successfully to EA. So for, I've known Frank for a long time. And I think, you know, the fact that I've had a relationship with him and known him for, you know, well over a decade, maybe, you know, almost two decades helps a lot, but it was just the right timing. He's, he's a great, he's, he's so well connected and he's such a smart guy and has been through, uh, you know, uh, the, the listing process and selling and he's been through so many big transactions. He's, he's, He's got such 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 great wisdom and he he'll push us and challenge us, which is what we wanted. You know, we don't want to sit back and have a you know a chair goes, Yeah, you're doing a great job, it's all brilliant. You want somebody to go, hey, why aren't you doing this? What do you what about this? Have you thought about this? And and so we like being challenged actually as a team. And uh, that's what we get from the board in a, in a good way. Not a there's no friction. We our board meetings are fun. That's what you want. You want your board meetings to be something you look forward to. But um, you know, we do get challenged as well. And I have regular meetings with them. Um, you know, I talk to Frank every week. I talk to Mercia every week. So, you know, we we do talk a lot about what's going on and I get some great advice from them. You make a really, a really nice and really good point that you want your board meetings to be something you look forward to um, and challenged in the right and healthy way, not something to dread. And if you've got to deliver some bad news, it's this problem. Um, no, that's really, that's really insightful. Thank you. Patrick, final question. Um, Final dinner on planet Earth or in the metaverse. Um, you get have you get a free guests around you uh, around the table. Um, 
any walk of life, dead alive, doesn't have to be hugely intellectual. It can be anything personal choice from you, a little insight into your own personality. Free guests, number one. <laughs> this is difficult. Am I allowed to invite my wife when I get told? Yeah. Do you know what? The amount of people <laughs> who keep copping out with, can I bring my wife? <laughs> okay, she's up at time, that's fine. Um, you, can, you can invite your wife, but she might be guest number four. Guest number one. <laughs> okay, that's fine. That's all right. So Douglas Adams is somebody I had the fortune to meet and chat to before he died. And he was one of the most fascinating characters I've ever known. A really amazing mind, brilliant writer. Um, I could just spend years talking to Douglas Adams. So I think he would definitely be one of them. Um, who else? Probably probably everyone says this. Somebody like Steve Jobs would be fascinating, I think, because I think he's a real visionary. And, you know, and I love thinking about futurology and where, where things are going. I'm always thinking about what where things are going to be in five, 10 years, as you probably gathered from me waffling around today. So um, I think talking to him would be really interesting. I'd love to know his views on the market at the moment and where it's going. Um, and who else? I don't know, somebody a bit random, maybe Steve McQueen or somebody who's just had such a fascinating life and uh, was such a character with his racing and driving and acting and everything. That would it'd be, it'd be a barrel of laughs, I think. I think the colour tones of work are oh, sort of Steve, well, the two Steves, it'd be a lot of white and black sort of knocking around, wouldn't they, in terms of what you performed <laughs> that they'd wear. Nice, good, cho good choices. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it. Not always the, the easiest of questions, you know, questions to answer on the spot. Um, it's a real shame. I've had a big smile on my face during this. It's a real shame this hasn't been a video and it's a podcast because how animated you are and uh, when you're sort of gesticulating around which direction the uh, headset could go and it's been, it's, it's been really nice to watch. Patrick, thank you for um, joining us on the Found and Chief podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you're an entrepreneur or CEO and have a story you would like to feature or would like to suggest a founder you'd like to hear from, Drop us a line at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. That's live, L-I-V-E, at zeuscapital.co.uk. Or follow us on social media at Founder and Chief. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed.